0: This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Part memoir, part social critique, Aaron Smith's The Rock is both confronting and confirming. His time on Thursday Island as the editor of the Torres News enables him to write with insight on the cultural, geographical, spiritual and political conundrums facing those living in the region. So, Aaron... Welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having us on the show, Dave. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, look, I've got to say, you set out to confront and challenge the reader right from the get-go. Your foreword relies on a four-letter word. Yeah,
1: look, I, this is my take on the great Australian anti-novel, except it's talking about the ugly truth of the lie that is Australia. And, and I guess that four-letter word or forward. Is an open letter to to Australia, and I give a serve to everyone, uh, myself included. For me, I think we need to wake up and smell the smell the flowers, you know, mate. I think it's, it's it's a time for us to mature as a nation, and I think that we're getting there. And I think, you know, that's that's what I'm hoping to do with this book is just to put a mirror back on ourselves, and um, and hopefully we can grow for moving forward. And, and, and I'm, I'm hoping this will be part of that part of that process
0: well you touch on a range of issues and we can't go into them all but geographically the Torres Strait Islands are closer to Papua New Guinea than they are to Canberra and this sort of raises all sorts of problems like citizenship trade and points out just how irrelevant Canberra is yeah, well, you know, it's funny that I, I come up with an expression. If,
1: if you sit on Ti or Thursday Island long enough, the whole world will walk past. And it's certainly, I certainly had a fair slice of it in my near seven years up there. And it is, it's a dinghy ride right away to the PNG border. Canberra's further away. I mean, Cairns further away. It's a thousand k's to Cairns and 150 k's to PNG. So it is, and it's a very porous border as per the Torres Strait Treaty, a world first that allows. Um, movement between the the two countries without visa or passports to maintain traditional kinship that you know that spans back way before the the, the sovereign nations of both PNG and Australia were formed so it is a fascinating mixing pot uh, of Australia and and that's that's part of the 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 reason of the name the rock Um, I mean the rock is a is a sort of a derogatory expression used by the bureaucrats, you know, like the, as an Alcatraz describing Thursday Island, but I see it as a delicious allegory for the third rock from the sun because it's a small slice of the whole world and all all the dramas and trials and tribulations that pay out in the world kind of play out in Ti. So it was a great sort of opportunity to reflect back on not just the
0: nation but but you know, the, the whole world in some ways. Well, instead of calling it the rock, you could call it the touchstone, because really. Yes, all the world passes by, but this is the country of Eddie Mabo. This is the region where Wik and the treaty there took place, which really challenges Australia's concept of how it's interacting with the Indigenous. Totally. I mean,
1: the Torres Strait is the cradle
0: of native title for Australia
1: and setting a precedent for the world, which has been used in you know, legal cases in British Columbia and, and, and further afield for Indigenous um, issues. And, and, and even before Mabo, going back to the border change in the 60s with Goff and Malcolm Prime Minister Malcolm uh, Fraser, the islanders have been fighting for their rights for a, a long time. And um, you know, and that was made pretty apparent. You know, pretty much first day on the job was Mabo Day 2013, and you know, where I was pretty much sunk into it as a white privileged suburbanite that knew sweet fa about you know this part of the world and. and 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 I had to become a spokesperson for a group of people I knew very little about. And and from there, it was an immersion. I'd say trial by fire, but I'd say immersion by
0: seawater is probably more appropriate. The book is both devastating and uplifting. I mean, politically, economically, the region represents the worst of European dominance, but the community and its traditions perhaps represent a way forward. I like
1: to think so, you know. And who, who am I to, to cast the first stone? To, to, to pardon the pun of riding the rock, it's it's. I think you know what what I saw as an outsider, um, and and being you know, the racial racial default, a, a white man. Uh, the last thing I want to do was is, is, was white man explain, you know, indigenous rights. But this book isn't written for for the black fellow and the mob across the country. It's, they they know the multi generational suffering and, and 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 hardship that they've gone through. This is for the other ninety seven percent, you know, myself included, and to share my journey of awakening and understanding. And not just, you know, about what's gone wrong, because, you know, and accepting like the frontier wars and, and the whitewashing of our history, but what 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 Indigenous culture has to offer moving forward from bushfire management to the sense of community, and more importantly, I guess the meta-narrative of this book is about understanding Country and having connection to place. And a big thing for me is, you know, as a as, as suburban Australian, as myself included, we've lost that connection to place. And I think that world over has a lot to answer for, you know, what I consider the world's in the arse end of times as, as far as, you know, the decimation of the environment and, and, and the end of capitalism and the overconsumption and the, the narcissism and, and everything that we're going through right now. I think if we would just to take a step back and breathe, and connect with some of the old knowledge and marry it with some of our new science. You know, I, I think we have potential to create an, a brave and new, an exciting new world.
0: Well, as you say, engaging traditional oral knowledge into the contemporary Western mindset may go a long way to rebuild the way we interact with our environment. And the environment is perhaps one of the more fundamental questions the global community is facing today.
1: Mate, I've spent time with with Indigenous people the world over. I lived in South America for three years. I've traced through the Himalayas and I've hung out with different modern different countries. And the message is, is, is painfully simple and it's the same the world over. And, in fact, there's there's a lot of work coming out of the UN and, and other sources that, that reveal that Indigenous people are, are the first to feel the impacts of climate change and, and environmental disaster. But they're also they also have, you know... An understanding of how to manage country and it's not some sort of deep mystical knowledge as a as a brother from a different mother said to me out bush just the other day it's like you know they say science is just based on empirical observation we've just been observing for a hell of a long time for tens of thousands of years and that's how we know to read country and it's that simple and i think that we've forgotten that i call it the great forgetting you know there's there's knowledge there there's lessons learned we don't have to reinvent the wheel we just have to connect with what was what's already here, we have the oldest surviving culture in the world. You know, we we don't we don't embrace and cherish that. You know, and it, and it's not some apologist thing that you know we have to face up just to the frontier wars, healing and moving forward, and, and not just saying sorry, but 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 saying thanks, mate. You know, because there's there's, there's, a, there's a lot there, and and a lot of the a lot of the people I speak to, a lot of the the practitioners of traditional knowledge, they're willing to share, mate. They want to get on with it. You know, so I think the time's right. So that's that's why I've written this book. It's for everyone else. That doesn't really know, and I, you know, I, even though I throw a few punches, I, I I don't mean to hurt anyone. It's 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 just good natured sparring on my behalf, and you know, in in that great Australian sort of larrikin tradition. You know, and I'm hoping that people can see that.
0: Well, are we capable of seeing it? Are we capable of listening and understanding? I think is the fundamental question, because when you go back over the history you've outlined, we've expunged the traditional Indigenous cultures, wherever European settlement has occurred. And we have, in some ways, lost our own identity and culture in so doing. Absolutely. And, and a really easy way to illustrate that is when someone
1: says to you in Australia, how are you going? You say good. It doesn't matter how dire your life is. You always say good. It doesn't matter. you know, you, Your wife could have left you. Your mum could have died. Your dog could have run away. You're still going to say good. And the thing is, that's a reflection on the state of denial of our culture, because there's so many skeletons in the the closet that if we start to open up, we don't know quite where it's going to end. And I think when we actually start to heal and face up to our past and move forwards and and, and marry it with our future, you know, maybe in 10 years time, we will not say good. Maybe we'll actually say how we feel. And, you know, I think that's a reflection of our maturity as a nation, which I think we, you know, we sort of. Caught in this colonial adolescence, and it's time to grow up and just get on with it. As 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 a fellow said to me on uh, National Talk Black Radio, it's like, let's just build a bridge and get over it.
0: That's yes, the traditional saying, but also in terms of trying to provide solutions, which is the European way, there's a backlash because inevitably a lot of those solutions fail. Well, yeah, I mean, it was
1: only recently um, Mick gooder said to me um aboriginal people are set up to fail because the the solutions are never on their terms and, and-, and another leader said to me a while back it's like we need the opportunity to, to fail but to fail on our own terms because then you know white fellow cultures had hundreds of years to make a dog's dinner of it and learn but you know we- we've sort of fast-track indigenous cultures to sort of to try and catch up to speed and and that they need self-autonomy and there's going to make mistakes there's going to be people that do the wrong thing. There's going to be people that wrought the system, but but no more than that happens in in mainstream culture. But the, it needs to be on their terms. Then the, the, they can make them and go, "Oh, geez, that didn't work so good. Let's try a different way." And 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 until that happens, if we keep going in there and trying to white man explain it to them, it's never going to stick because it's not it's not theirs. There's no ownership.
0: Do you think Australia has the grit to face this and uh, come up with? Um, an answer i think we
1: do mate you know you look look at some of our legends weary dunlop and you know the, the grit of of our anzacs and 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 the grit we've had from building this nation to the to, to the many waves of great immigrants that have come through from the chinese to the greeks to the vietnamese and now the sudanese there's i think there's i think australia's built on grit but I think we've got a bit complacent and got a bit fat on, on the on the grease of the land and and it's time to sort of, you know, and now we've got to all tighten our belts. You know, Australia seems to do best under hardship. So maybe the end of the 30-year glut of, of prosperity where, where, where that, that Aussie, that great Aussie spirit has, has seemed to have waned into selfishness. You know, maybe, maybe that's going to come back a bit now that we're going to be struggling for the next decade or so, you know, after BC, compared to BC before COVID. I think now is a time when, Maybe it's a time for our true character to, to once again shine like it has in other, in other times in our history.
0: Well, for the listener out there, the book is The Rock, the author, Aaron Smith, and it's a Transit Lounge release. So, Aaron, thank you very much for talking with me today. Mate, as, as they say, Island Way, mean the big S or Bala?
2: Thanks, David. And now it's time for my author. When an author bases fiction on history, it makes for an interesting read. And June Wilson has done just that with her book, Gloriana. Welcome, June. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Now, June, what part of English history have you researched so thoroughly? Well, I researched for this book, um,
3: Tudor History, in particular, The Reign of Elizabeth I, I've always been fascinated with her reign and had previously done quite a lot of reading, but clearly for this book I did some very specific research.
2: Well, this was a time when there were many insurgencies going on. This was the time of the Spanish Armada and the the push for Catholics to regain the throne again against the Protestants. And there's a chap, Sir Francis Walsingham. He was most important to, to Queen Elizabeth's court. Who was he? Well, I found him
3: a totally fascinating character which I think is what attracted me to the idea behind this story. When you actually look into his background, very little is known about the man Im- himself. He was a spy master and so he remained very shadowy. I expect that's, you know, the role of a spy master. I was quite fascinated by this idea that, you know, way back in sort of the 1560s, 1570s, there was someone that was really a precursor of maybe M, you know, in the James Bond <laughs> franchise. So I thought, well, look, you know, I want to write about him. He's, he's not a main character in the book, but he's an important character.
2: Was he really interested in demonology? Look, I have no idea. Oh, I, no. I,
3: I wasn't able to find that out about him. But the thing is, when you write fantasy, Jen, you can pretty much make up what you <laughs> like, you know. As long as you get the facts right, I think you're allowed a bit of poetic license.
2: Well, this brings us onto into another whole world, and there is certainly a connection. The name Gloriana, given to Elizabeth I, was coined by poet Edward Spencer. What did he write? Well, he,
3: he wrote a very long and very effusive poem called The Fairy Queen. And, I mean, there was another uh, angle that really took my fancy in that, Uh, In the book, we obviously have Queen Elizabeth, but we also have May, who is Queen of the Fae, literally. So the equivalent of, you know, Tatiana in A Midsummer Night's Dream, for instance. Um, And I thought it would be quite interesting to not exactly run these two stories in backgrounds. Both queens are actually, to a certain extent, background characters in in the book as a whole. But I just thought that riff, if you like, was interesting. Well,
2: we've got the true history with a little bit of fantasy thrown in of England and the Queen and then this made-up world of Middengard. Where did this whole idea come from, apart from June Wilson's mind? (laughs) I think there is a little bit of an interesting
3: story about that. I was driving back from Canberra one day, as you do, and I was bored, as you can imagine. It's quite a long drive. I, this story just popped into my head. I, I was thinking about Melbourne and I was thinking about the Shrine of Remembrance and what a magnificent building it is. And wouldn't that be wonderful if it was also a portal to another world? And, and I think the idea just went from there. So in the first book of the Midgard Saga, my three teenage uh, protagonists they get lured to the shrine and they find themselves in Midgard quite unwittingly. It goes on from there and the whole series of books does switch between modern day Australia, Midgard and also England about 20 years ago. So
2: you've also given us the background of Midgard and all the gods that are around and about and all the different histories of Midgard and the different wars that have happened there too and as you mentioned may the queen of the fae there's also isold and these yeah. two women are many centuries old but they've got sister I-, I like the way you've written in the sisterly spats that they quite often have and yeah. such a knowledge and isold with her old books in a library protected by locks and ancient ruins but then there's lockie who's he
3: Oh, um, Loci, yes. Okay. Loki Because Loci is um, a Norse god. You may be, some some of your readers, uh, sorry, readers, <laughs> readers and all <laughs> listeners will be familiar with Loki. I believe, from the film fran- Marvel film franchise. But uh, I first learned about the Norse gods through my interest in Norse mythology, and he really is. He's a trickster god, so he's very clever and very amusing. He usually gets his comeuppance, but he just likes to do things like that riddles, which basically is the, the lift-off point for this particular book.
2: Well, as you say, look, look, I is a mischief-maker, but this is more than mischief of what's going on. There's bodies have been found with blood and guts galore, corpses with eyes wide and staring and such a look of horror in them. Grizzly murders indeed. So this brings us to Molly Watson. Where is she when we first meet her?
3: Molly is a 19th century mill worker. So she is in Yorkshire in round about 1855-56 um, doing her job, which is working in the woolen mills near Bradford.
2: And in contrast, there's Josh Winter. Yes. Yeah,
3: Josh, Josh is an 18-year-old uh, typical, I suppose, Melbourne teenager who's just finished year 12. He's busy watching the cricket. And is is a bit bored because he's waiting to go to college.
2: <laughs> They've met before, and you've brought new meaning to the term having a long distance relationship. <laughs> yeah. They know of each other's powers and of sight and hearing. Why have they been brought together again? Um, they're brought together. It's it's
3: mainly because of their bloodline so in the in the earlier books we learn that they they both as you as you reference have these special powers Uh, they're both mixed blood if you like so they have part human blood and part various other blood strains but together they make a formidable team so it's that idea that, that it's a trope you know it's a common trope in fantasy there's a chosen hero or heroine in this instance the two of them and together they'll be able to solve the riddle and do do what's needed to... Um...
2: Solve it to stop. Now, this is a quote from June Wilson's book, the deity whose name had been lost to history, the creator of chaos who seeded doubt and despair in the minds of men. But not all dark, we know it. despair cannot take your heart, despair cannot take your soul. So, together in Tudor England, and they happen upon a scruffy urchin who is watching them, but there is also someone else watching. This is where I'd like June Wilson to read from page 96 from her book, Gloriana.
3: Okay, thank you. I have news, my lord, the young man said, sketching a bow. No need for titles, Walsingham said, waving off the gesture. He found any form of flattery tedious. What is so urgent that you disturb me without invitation? He steepled his fingers beneath his chin, gauging the boy's reaction. He didn't look nervous and didn't flinch, a good sign. Half the trick in spying was bravado. The rest, of course, was intelligence. I have tracked down the girl, Radcliffe's daughter. She's been passing herself off as a boy and wandering around the city unchecked. Walsingham raised a brow. Sir Philip Radcliffe, a man prepared to deal with the Catholics if it enriched him in the process, had been in his sights for months. It was said he had killed his wife and that his only child had been witness to the murder. A circumstance that could be incredibly useful, whether it be true or otherwise. And, he said, and, the young man echoed, looking flustered for the first time, and what use is that knowledge to me? Well, I'm not sure, my lord. The young man stared at his feet, then lifted his chin defiantly, though she has been spending a lot of time close to the Greenwich Wharf. There is something that interests her there. Something, something is of little interest to me unless you can define what it is. The young man, Adam, he was sure of it now, the youngest son of an inconsequential Northern family, let out a breath and said, the Radcliffe girl isn't the only one I've tracked down to Greenwich. There are others new to London.
2: Mm. And, of course, those others, Molly and Josh, this Radcliffe daughter, Cat, appears in a chapter that you call the Cats. and there's another cat, and this cat's name is Belthasar, the shapeshifter. So they all come together. Now part of the riddle is to get close to Queen Elizabeth I, and it's Cat who can help her, help them do that. What's going to be her special role?
3: Well, Kat's special role, really, is she's she's quite well connected fortuitously, and also there's a member of Elizabeth's court who who wants to marry her, as, as was the way in those days, um, an older an older man who quite likes the sound of a much younger bride. Kat has no intention of marrying him, but he is their entree to Elizabeth's inner circle, and once they get there. It's then relatively easy for Kat to worm her way. She becomes a a lady of the bedchamber, which is a very important and historically accurate role, which brings her very close to Queen Elizabeth herself, and they they have a number of meetings uh, in the
2: book. There's beautiful descriptions all through this book of the place setting. You you can probably
3: tell. I mean, I'm English by birth and, uh, you know, I have spent quite a bit of time in London and... I, love, I mean, I love history, so I always visit the most historic places when I'm there, and you know, it's a joy to to wander those streets and and sort of imagine, you know, what what happened in the past mm. and what might have transpired. And you you know, once you've got your imagination going, you can you can think of all sorts of things. So, I, I do like to describe. Places, but I like to keep it light. I don't. I know readers sometimes get a bit bored. You know, if they've got two or three pages of description, they they, they lose interest. So I
2: think the the other light thing you do is the dialogue, the amusing dialogue between many of the characters, whether it's one-upmanship or modern dialogue that teenagers may share now and four hundred years ago. <laughs> that's and but one one of the things you do do is you get these teenagers drinking their fair share of ale and meat and uh, one of the other uh, drinks in there is an elixir of fossilized dragon excrement <laughs> they do get their fair share of hangovers too don't
3: they so yes, well, yeah you know, i think i think um, i'm very careful in my books i, I I try and sort of portray teenage life with some element of reality, but I I don't I don't go too far. I mean they're they're light-hearted books to a certain extent, a little bit whimsical with with some serious topics in there, but I think it's important to to make them real enough without you know going too far with that sort of thing.
2: Now this is just book one of the Chronicles of Albion and you've said that you've got a whole other set that sort of sets the scene here. And, of course, we are left on a bit of a cliffhanger with this one, which we won't go into. Are they all set in Tudor times? Oh, no. (laughs) No, um, my my whole
3: idea when I first started these chronicles was really the riddle, which the first line of the riddle, which is Queens, there are three. And I wanted to write about three famous queens in history, And it just so happened that, you know, Elizabeth is my favourite, but now I have two more to write about. So the next book I'm I'm nearly halfway through is about another queen. So they basically takes up where this book ends and they will go on a slightly, on a different journey to a different time and have different adventures with it. A different queen.
2: Well, Tudor times were full of polit- political plots and conspiracies, just as in the fantasy world of Middengard, that June Wilson has magicked up in Gloriana. Thank you very much, June. Thank you.
3: That was lovely. Thank you so much.
2: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the
3: studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.